0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. Sermon series you will ever, ever be part of in the history of your life. It is a two year sermon series. That's pretty ambitious. And it's called 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible. Now obviously, it's impossible for any group of Christians to agree these are the essential 100 things. And we've had to make some serious judgment calls about what gets included on this list. But we just felt like as a church, if you sit under the teaching of a church for a couple years and you still don't really have a good idea of the broad sweep of what the Bible talks about, that's a problem. And so we wanted to just identify hundred key themes that we think are so important that if you've been walking in the church for a while, you should know something about these things. And obviously the topics are great, huge things, and it's impossible in 40 minutes to talk about everything that could be said about those topics or passages. So along the way, we're going to have to make some very serious editorial decisions, and we've done that this morning. And I want to start by talking about creation because that's really appropriately where the story should begin. Now what's really cool is we're going to have a companion webpage that's already posted where you're going to get to download more resources if you're interested in the topic we're presenting and learn more on your own. The, the links that we put up for today's message are kind of interesting. There's some cool things on there. Not all of them put up from a Christian perspective, but all of them guaranteed to provoke your thinking and help you engage in further exploration on your own. There's also a little timeline. It's a little application on the web page that you can scroll across and see all 100 topics in advance. And each week that we preach on one of these topics, our brother Heath, who is an artist, like I said before, is going to put together a, a, an illustration for us. That's the first one. And if you can see what that is, it, it shows the how when God was creating the world, he caused waters to swirl up and he was forming this planet. And it all seems rather chaotic. I, I'm not sure how it would be depicted in, in a motion picture, but Heath is trying to capture that sense of the swirling elements and how God was just assembling the world with his spoken word and the elements were obeying him and forming into this planet that we live on. And it's a cool illustration, and I've seen sneak peeks at some of the other things he's going to do. And I think um, each week it's exciting to go to the webpage, see the new illustration, and then download some more of the resources. And as I said before, we're also encouraging the whole church to um, read the Bible along with us over the next two years. I just want to see another show of hands. I asked last week, but I just got to know who joined us. How many of us are doing the two-year Bible reading program together. Just raise your hands. Raise them high. Raise them high. All right, great. If you're not doing it, it's still only the 11th, okay? And it's really not too late. It'll just take one good, long, solid two hours of reading, and you'll be caught up with the rest of us. I'm urging you, please do not miss this chance. To just get through the Bible. By the way, if you didn't raise your hand, but you're on another reading program, like a one-year or a six-month, could could I see your hands just so I I don't make you feel bad for nothing? All right. There you are. Great. I'm also on a one-year plan, but I want to encourage you to get on some kind of a plan because reading the Bible every day is one of those disciplines that's kind of hard to keep track of, but when we're doing it together and there's accountability, it's somehow easier to get through it, and maybe this will be your chance to get through the whole Bible cover to cover with us. All right? Well, as mentioned here, the first message is on creation, and it's a very long passage as almost all of them promise to be over the next couple years. And so I'm not going to post the whole text for you, but we're going to interact with different parts of it, and each time we're going to bring the laser-sharp focus on a few important themes that come out of that topic. The first theme out of the topic of creation, how it all began, is origins, There's a really cool quote here by a 17th century um, scholar named Gottfried Leibniz, Leibniz, and here's what he says. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, at first I read that, I'm like, whatever, but if you think about it, it's a very profound question. If there is no creator, no first cause, doesn't it stand to reason that the most logical thing is there shouldn't be anything? Why is there matter? Why is there a universe? Why is there space? And he asks this question because it really really pushes us. The fact that things exist forced the question, how on earth did it get here unless there was a first cause? It's it's fascinating to me that every human culture and every religious system has some kind of a creation story or creation myth embedded in it. It seems as if from the moment that a young child asks her her parents, you know, where did I come from, mommy and daddy? That's the the dreaded question, right? Where did I come from? And you begin by telling them a a long-necked bird brought them in a a satchel or something. But it's a question we all have. Here I am. I've grown into self-awareness. How did I get here? How do I find myself on this planet? And every group of people has seemed to ask that question because it is a central question in the human experience. What is my origin and what is our origins? Many of the more primitive religions don't go beyond the boundaries of the human race to ask about the universe, but they simply ask, where did earth come from and where did people and animals come from? But there's another quote I want to introduce you to. It's uh, Albert Einstein said this, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Meaning how did we, who many in his camp believe are just evolved monkeys, come to comprehend the universe around us and send up devices that could shoot photographs of the distant reaches of our galaxies, how do we do that? The amazing thing is that we here on Earth are aware of more than just the Earth. That the stars are not just little holes punched in a black veil or lights hanging in the sky. They are stars and galaxies and planets. And for us to be aware of that expands the scope of this universal question so that we're left asking not just where did we come from, but where did everything come from? You might not believe me, but as as a younger man, uh, as a young boy, like 12, 13, I would freak myself out all the time asking these questions of myself. Where is all this stuff from? And if there's a boundary to the universe, does it sit in a room or in a snow globe on the desk of some great being? Like, what is all this? And where does it all end and where did it start? Well, a lot of smart people have really tried to come up with the answers to questions like that. You know, they, they ask, where did it all come from? The Big Bang Theory, by the way, how many of you guys are familiar with the Big Bang Theory? It means if you graduated elementary school, you've got to know something about it, right? It's the most prevalent theory for how everything began. It started as it, from the observation that if you look at the heavens, it seems that all the galaxies are moving at a uniform rate and they seem to be going in one radial direction away from a central point somewhere in the universe. And so the deduction is if you trace all that back, the universe is a result of a great explosion, and ever since it's just been expanding outward. And so, if you extrapolate backwards in time, you can say that the whole universe once started from a single point and a single particle of matter. That there was a time when time didn't exist, where there was no such thing as space, time, or matter. There was just nothing except what we call this primeval atom. This incredibly dense particle of material that one day banged and became everything. Became you, me, these pews, this building, this planet, the Milky Way galaxy. That's kind of an unbelievable thing, but I will say this. The Big Bang theory seems most closely to fit the scientific data. When I hear, and I know the old school creationists are like, he said Big Bang and he didn't seem to call it the devil's work. You know, I was trained in the sciences at one point in my life, and as I look at the data, the Big Bang is actually a pretty good explanation for what we see around us. Where it falls apart is when it exits the realm of science and enters the realm of philosophy and faith it falls apart where it tries to answer the question, so where did that first little particle come from and what made it bang? I actually don't think the Big Bang and its central principles is any threat to the Christian or creationist worldview. I think it might very well explain exactly how God called the universe into being and how it's been expanding ever since. But the one question we have to wrestle with is where did that particle come from and what made it bang? Right? Did you know the Big Bang is actually a derogatory term made, made by a guy named, it was coined by a guy named Fred Hoyle, I think, who wasn't, he was a detractor of the Big Bang theory, and he was trying to make fun of the scientists by going, ooh, they believe in a Big Bang. But it actually seems to be what happened. What made it bang? Where did it come from? I think the first four words of our Bible address that question head on. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, whatever you put after that, the point is, before there was any beginning we can understand in this universe, there was God. He always was. He always is. He always will be. You know, the most honest answer I ever heard from a secular scientist came from one of my professors when I was in graduate school down at Emory University. We got to talking about DNA. That's what we were studying. But we further went on to say, how did all this come into being, this idea of evolution which you embrace How did everything, if we trace it back, get started? And he said, well, obviously the Big Bang, any self-respecting scientist knows that the Big Bang is how it all began. And I got him all the way back to that particle and I asked him, doctor, I won't tell you his last name, but doctor, call him Dr. M, where did it come from and what made it bang? And he gave me the most honest answer I've ever heard. He said, you know what, Dave, that's a very good question. And my only answer is, you just got to take it on faith that it always existed and it just happened. That's an honest answer because he understands that science as a tool cannot go beyond that piece of conjecture. It can't prove anything. It can't tell you because there's no cameras there. It's absurd that the universe in which everything has a cause, no matter pops out of thin air and becomes something from nothing, that the universe itself then doesn't obey its own laws. That while everything in the universe has to have a point of origin and a cause, the universe itself just one day was. It decided all by itself to be, to exist, and to bang. And it came out of its little shell all by itself. And I told my professor, you know what, Doc? I respect your honesty, but I got to tell you, that sounds an awful lot like religious talk. It sounds a lot to me like what you have is what I have in the end we made a choice driven by faith. It seems to me that when it comes right down to it, you just have to believe something. And what you chose to believe actually takes a lot more faith in my, my ideas than what I believe. Because I hold my children, and I see the sunsets, and I understand what it feels like to be in love, to be happy, to feel fear. I see the way all of creation works together. I see order, beauty. I see all of that. And it makes so much more sense to me if I have to make a blind statement of faith that there is one who has made himself known to us, who is behind all of it, than simply this answer that it just was and it just happened. Now, I think ultimately the reason I'm sharing all this scientific seminar type stuff with you is because it may not sound like a religious question, but it is the ultimate and foundational religious question. We can talk all about how whether you believe it's Allah who saves or, or Jesus who saves, whether it's reincarnation, whether it's karma in operation. We can talk about our own souls, our own destinies, but all of that is moot if we can't answer the question, where did it all start? Because if it was made by someone, then that someone must be known and he gets to define reality. And if your system of belief cannot address that at all, it's incomplete. It's only describing the aftermath of an accident it didn't see. And so I say to you that this is one of the most profound questions we have to wrestle with over the course of our lives. Where did it all get started? And my contention is, in the end, whether you take the route of science or you take the route of faith, it all boils down to a statement that I just believe this is how it was. And I want to challenge you and encourage you as you think about that, with real intellectual powers employed here, I hope that you'll make a choice. That if you've got to just have faith, have faith in a being. Not just in events that have no explanation, that just happen, that just are. But have faith in a being. Now, I can't prove that. If you're one of those guys who w- wants to put on your pointy hat and box with me in the parking lot, let's go a couple rounds. You know, I might try to confuse you. You'll confuse me. But in the end, you and I are in the same boat. You just believe something, and so do I. And I think that my money is on God who has touched my heart, who has revealed himself to me. And if that's just indigestion I'm seeing things, that's okay with me. It still gives me more peace in my heart than a hyperdense Adam atom that just decided to show up one day and become me. Amen? I don't know if that soothes you, confuses you, but I, I want to also move on from the idea of origins to the idea of creation. Because really, if we assume that it wasn't just an atom, but God made everything— Then to behold creation itself, what he made, says a lot about the person. I mean, when you study the works of an artist, you learn a lot about the artist themselves, don't you? What they choose to create, how, what medium they choose to work in, how they look at it. Some people see a sunset and they see something sinister, like darkness is encroaching. I see it as, oh look, the pretty orange orb is sinking and then peaceful night is coming. Others see, oh man, the monsters are coming out. It's interesting when you study what is made, that the maker reveals themselves. And so the question I have for you is, what does the creation we see all around us tell us about the one who we believe made it all? And I think a few clear things come out of the creation story that reveal God's nature to us. One thing I see in there is that God's creative drive is explosive. It's explosive. I, I love this verse. Look at this. Genesis 1.16. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And yes, I know the moon is not really a source of light. It just reflects the sun's light. Yes. But to ancient peoples, that made a lot of sense, okay? Okay. But then I just love this little, like, afterthought. Oh, and he also made the stars. That's all. He, just, he also made the stars. The sun and moon are nothing compared to the stars. I want to give you a sense of the vastness of the universe. You know this, this little solar system we live in? It is, it's the hair on the face of a dust mite sitting on your pillow. Okay? I mean, that's how, it's Nothing. This universe that we live in is vast. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is so huge that we can actually see it from within it. That's how big it is. It consists of of, of about 200 billion stars. I know those are big numbers. That's 200,000 million stars, guys. Each star, something like the sun, okay? It creates light and heat. It could have planets orbiting 200 billion of those in just our galaxy. To travel from one side of this galaxy of ours to the other would take a hundred thousand years if you were traveling zoom at the speed of light. Blazing fast it would take you one hundred thousand years just to get to the outside of our galaxy. And do you realize that our galaxy is one of an estimated one hundred and twenty five billion galaxies in the universe? You know, for most people, those are numbers that don't even mean anything. Once I started talking about billion, hundred billion, most people, including myself, just like, ah, I don't don't hear anything except blah, blah, blah. You can't wrap your mind around numbers like that. And yet that's what God just records as, oh yeah, and he also made the stars. Imagine if he was really trying. I mean, you know what I'm getting at? When you see the expanse of it, and if, as some Christians believe, we are the only sentient beings in the universe, okay, and I don't necessarily think the Bible requires that belief of us. You can talk to me sometime over a delicious dinner you buy, and we'll talk about UFOs and the possibility of life on other planets, but you know, if you believe that we're the only ones in this place, then guess what? It's too much house. It's just too big. Why did God make such a vast place us. This six and a half billion collection of sorry beings, why would he make such a vast house for us? Well, if you look at it from us as a center, it makes no sense. But if you look at it from the perspective of what God is like, it really reveals something. God is explosive When he decides to make a universe, he doesn't start with a diorama in a shoebox. He goes big. He says, I'll make the stars, and he makes hundreds and hundreds of billions of them. And he scatters them all over the farthest reaches. This is the size, the explosive drive to create that our God has. And scripture teaches us that God deposited into each of us his image, his image, That means that this explosive desire to create is also deposited in each one of us. Now you know that's true if you have kids because children, I don't know what it is, you give them a piece of paper and a crayon, they are in heaven. You could ignore them for at least a good hour while they're just like creating stuff. You give them arts and crafts. Children are so excited about arts and crafts. Some people, grown-ups are too, but I think it really fades in us as we get older and we get serious about the business of running the world. We forget that one of the great things God put in us is this desire to create things, to make something wonderful. And if that's faded in you, if you've become a really boring grown-up, and if I gave you a bunch of glue and some some popsicle sticks, you'd be like, what? (laughs) Something died inside of you, man. Something that used to be there has been suppressed, but it's in there because God gave us his image. He breathed it into us, and it's all churning around there. And I believe that God wants to tap into that. In most of our lives, it's it's dormant, and he wants to bring it out. He doesn't want you to just do things to maintain the status quo. He wants you to bring something powerfully unique into the world, to give birth to things, not just other human beings, babies, but birth to ideas, to beauty, to meaning, to hope, to a sense of place. I mean, I just, just think about it. How much people love going to Starbucks, not because their, co- their coffee is atrocious, if you ask me. I hate their coffee, but I love their place. It's something about it. I, I would rather meet someone at Starbucks than in most other places, and I'll endure the coffee because I like that space. They've created a third place, haven't they? Why is it that some people's houses are so much more inviting than other people's houses? You know, growing up, everybody had that one dorm room that everyone hung out at, that one apartment that you always crashed at after class, because people sometimes create place. Whatever it is, there is something churning in you which has been squelched by years of growing up, and I believe God wants to set it on fire and explode something in you. If you're musical and all you do is play other people's songs, I think it's time God is saying, why don't you write the music I put in you? Write something. Draw something. Create something because it's in you. All right, enough said about that. If you look also at creation, another thing emerges out of it, and, and that is that God's creative drive is imaginative. It's imag- I mean, look at that crazy-looking thing. Who designs a bird that looks like that? I mean, it's blue. Look at the, the shade of blue. And then its butt is all yellow. And then it's got eyeballs all over its fan. And that's, it's just crazy if you think about the creation that God has made. One look, not even at the heavens, but just at our own planet. It is exploding with diversity. You know, I was just toying with this idea over the week that there are all these one-word realities in our world. Like We say words like, I don't know, uh, let, let's, let's pick one. Bird. Okay, bird. And it's just one word in English, but look at God's imagination at all the different kinds of birds. I, I included as many as I could find there, but there are so many more. How about a word like uh, dog? That, that second one on the bottom is hideous. It's one of those hairless dogs. <laughs> disgusting. Uh, and the chihuahua and the poodle are not to my taste. But you know, these are all dogs. When you say, I have a dog, you can't just close your eyes and picture what that is. There are at least 125 breeds of dogs registered by the American Kennel, um, whatever, the AK, what is that? See, those dog people club. What about flower? It's amazing when you look at all the kinds of flowers God has made, and this is a fraction of the flowers that are out there. What about bug? Oh, I found a bug. Some of those are gross. You know what that thing is in the upper right corner there? That's all over your bed. Okay. That's a dust mite. It's a very close-up shot of one. It's disgusting, and you are sleeping on millions of them every single night. In fact, right now, if you go like this, they're just—they're just you're shuffling them around. Okay? That's bug. And look at the diversity of bug life. How about just people? Faces. Look at all those faces. Just walk through a mall and stare at people. It's amazing to see all the diversity of faces on the earth. And that's just, you you would think two eyes, a nose. You know, when you're drawing stick figures and your kids are drawing faces, every face looks the same. Two circles for the eyes, a squiggle for the nose, and a line for the mouth. How much variation could God give on that one simple theme? And there you have it. Seven main notes on the scale. And look at all the music that has been produced. I mean, when you think about the diversity that we find all through creation, it shows us that God is an imaginative being, that he explodes with variety, and he he delights when his children also explode in variety. I think he loves it that when he looks down on the world, he sees us doing so many different kinds of things, not always marching in lockstep to the same cookie cutter thing. I think one thing that breaks God's heart is globalization of pop culture. I think that's a really unfortunate thing, where Nike and McDonald's and hip-hop music and all that is just marching forward and infecting the world and wiping out in its path all the wonderful uniqueness of each people group. I hate to see that happening. I think we ought to celebrate just how imaginative and diverse God has made the, 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 the planet and the human race. You know, I don't think this planet needs 298 kinds of squid. Do you realize? I looked that up. There's 298 kinds of squids split over and split off into 28 taxonomic families. That's ridiculous. When I get to heaven, I'm just going to go, God, that's just ridiculous. We don't need 298 kinds of squid. But you know what God will say? Bro, I was just having fun. Nobody needs one squid, much less 300. But you know what? I just enjoy making stuff. And when I'm just having fun, watch out. There's no end to what I'm going to come up with. God is like a jazz musician. He takes a good melody and he riffs on it all day. and No two tunes are the same. And when we do that, we touch a side of God that he wants to bring more and more out of us. There's church in the vanilla configuration. We could do it the same way every week. But inside of each of you is deposited some divine imagination. And God might activate that one day in you. And you will be responsible for taking our church in a new direction that will cause hearts to sing and lives to change. That's in you. Do you understand that? And if you're sitting next to your spouse and your spouse is going, oh, not my mate. Believe me, there's nothing imaginative going on there. That's wrong. You could be the most boring-looking person. I mean, look at Bill Gates, and he created windows, okay? That's amazing. And you look at the guy, like, no, he didn't. Yeah, he did. He did. You could be the most boring-looking person, and you could bring something into the world that just never was. And I hope that when you do anything at all, you will constantly learn to employ your redemptive, God-given imagination. That is something that I think God delights in. I see another thing in the creation story, and that is that God, when he's creating, is life-loving. I love this picture. Have you ever seen the, the Blue Planet series where they, they, I think it's either the planet Earth or the blue planet, or was it deep blue or something? It's, it's, where, it's where they got all the undersea stuff. It's blue planet. There it is. And they show like these schools of fish swarming around. And the divers are in there just hitting the camera. And that's what I picture when I read verses like these. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. You get the feeling reading that that God likes crowded places? He didn't just make a couple of birds and go, here, you have the whole sky to yourselves, go nuts. He wanted the sky to be darkened by the birds. If you ever see San Juan Capistrano in California, and every year when the migration of swallows comes through there, it's amazing to see the footage. The day becomes night as millions of birds just fly together over that city and settle on the trees. It's supposed to be an amazing thing to witness in person. I think that scene gives God a chuckle. I think he delights in the idea that the the planet he made is swarming. And here's all of us talking, you know, in in, in these scholarly circles about population control. It's only because we stink at sharing that we have to talk about population control. There's room on this planet for a lot more people. And I think God delights in a packed house. You know, our hearts, when they're not like God, say things like, "Why Why are there so many kids in this family? Everyone just shut up! Stop it. Come to order. Find your own corners. Be quiet and hidden and invisible. And God says, no, let the children scream and run. I enjoy life. I want to see this place teeming with life. Once in a while, I touch that. When I'm traveling overseas and I get to go to one of those, uh, those markets, those open-air markets, you know what they're like in the third world, right? It's not like Walmart or, or some orderly shopping mall where everyone stands in line. It's just a mass of humanity. You have the your little basket and you're walking like this trying to find, oh, you know, there are the snails and they're the vegetables. And yet something about that pressing down of humanity, it excites me. It makes me feel like this is a place that's living. Then I go to Woodfield and I, I sit on a bench and I watch people browsing at clothing they don't even want to buy anything. That's different feeling. It's crowded, but somehow I think when it's just bustling, jammed with life, there's something that God loves about that. You know what I'm talking about? And I think that that's something that should guide the way we engage with God in any creative work. That what we do with our divine imaginations, what we explode with in creativity, shouldn't just be cool and give us a good name. It should be life-affirming. It should do something to bring goodness and well-being and protection and prosperity to life on this planet. Whether you're protecting the life of the planet itself, whether you're protecting the, the, the life of living organisms like plants, trees, animals, whether you're protecting human life, preserving it, enhancing it, every time we love and affirm life on this planet, God's heart delights in us because that's exactly what he does all the time. Do you know, I really believe that planting a garden can be a spiritual activity. I believe recycling your waste can be a spiritual, God-honoring activity. I believe adopting a dog or adopting a human being can be God-affirming activities because all these things reflect this divine, creative, driving God that affirms and protects and enhances life on this planet. God loves life. It's my prayer for our church that whatever you do with your imagination, you'll be guided not simply by fame and glory and wealth, but by a desire to love life, the way your creator loves life. To not be overly concerned with how crowded the planet's getting, but how we can affirm all those who occupy it, who have as much right to be here as you and I. You know, it's interesting when you read scripture, look at John 10.10, 10, how Jesus chose to distinguish himself from Satan. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. This is the divine drive that's in all of us. And I really hope that God will set that loose in you. We're getting close to the finish, so hang on with me. I see one last thing that i got to mention about God's creative drive, and that is that there's beauty there. You know, just look at that. That's just a ball of rock, really, in water. It's all it is. It's the planet we live on. But I don't know why. It may be evolutionists will say because it's your planet. You have to like it, you know. But truth is, I see all the other planets in our solar system, I still think, well, Saturn's a close second. Okay, it's pretty cool. But Earth is just beautiful. The blue, the white, the green, it just something about it it, it, it excites me. And I think if the ball itself is just beautiful, and the closer you zoom in, it gets more beautiful all the time. I think it's an amazing thing that God filled the world with so much extravagant beauty. You know, if you're an engineer in the world of total functional pragmatism, beauty is unnecessary. A car doesn't have to look cool. It's just got to work well and have good gas mileage. And that explains all of Eastern Europe's car production, doesn't it? I mean, (laughs) have you ever seen the cars in Eastern Europe? They are not driven by the American love of cars and their beauty. They are boxes that move you from point A to point B. And I appreciate that we need people like that. We need engine nerds who know that this thing doesn't have to be cool, the code doesn't have to be elegant, It just gotta work and it's gotta be lean. That's all we care about. God bless you. But thank God that next to you engine nerds, he allowed a few women to give birth to designers and artists. People who say, yeah, you know, the PC works, but the iMac is beautiful. And you know, know, don't be a hater, you know that's true. Okay, I'm not talking about the operating. I'm just talking about the hardware. It's just beautiful, okay? This right here is beautiful, okay? That's what we're getting at, is beauty from a purely functional standpoint is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But it's embedded because it creates pleasure. It enhances quality of life. It adds something that's not about function but about delight. And God actually affirms that. He's about that. Some people think that God is this austere manager, accountant type who wants to trim all the fat from the world. Why do we have to waste our money on that? That's church money. We shouldn't do that. Why should the seats look beautiful? They should just be hard and flat and hold our butts up. Yes, but why not have some beauty when God himself deposited so much of it into our world? You know, you think about an apple. Yeah, it's nutritious. It gives you good vitamins. But why does it have to taste so delicious? It's so good. And how about an Asian pear? I, I, I don't mean to hate on the non-Asian pears, but I'm sorry. That's the one thing we Asians got right is the pears, okay? Man, are those things good. I love them. Why does it have to taste good? Why does the sunset have to be beautiful? It doesn't have to be. It just is because God who made it delights in beauty. And every time you bring something beautiful into the world, you produce something of value. It doesn't have to be functional. You look at $100,000 spent on a sculpture that sits in the middle of a city square, and you might think as a practical person, I can't believe tax dollars and all that was paper. But you know what? You walk past it, and one day you'll be lonely and, and, and bored and stare at that and go, oh, that's actually kind of cool. Some of you will never get there, all right? But many of you, given the right circumstances, you will actually see the beauty, and you will affirm it, and you'll realize that God delights and unnecessary beauty. Now, you have to be careful where you go with that because it's possible, like with anything, to abuse it and erase and suck out of it all the divinity. Make sure you understand that God delights in beauty that affirms and is redemptive. Beauty that isn't glorifying to self, but beauty that glorifies God and produces genuine, pure delight in us. Last thing I want to talk about, this last theme that I'd be remiss if I left Genesis 1 without talking about this, I'd rather Genesis 1 and 2, is rest. Some of you are wondering if I'm going to talk about Sabbath rest. I'm going to just give a few words about this. There's so much to be said about the fact that God rested. And didn't you find that the first time you read the Bible? Didn't you find it so peculiar that Genesis 2 begins with the words, On the seventh day, God rested. Right, he rested. I mean, look, look at what it says. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, having finished his task, God rested from all his work. I remember as a kid reading that and I, I just, I had to grab my mom and go, I just don't understand that. Why does God have to rest? What's the point of being all powerful if you get exhausted from doing work? And, and here's the explanation that I've received over the years. I really believe that God rested for two main reasons. You want to hear them? No? <laughs> I'll tell you any. Anyway, I don't care. I've got I to get off my chest. The first reason God rested was to teach us to rest. Listen, he didn't need to rest, but we absolutely need to rest. And I believe he was setting a rhythm one of the pastors down in Texas who's really well-known, he's a drummer also by training, and he got on the drum set of the worship band, and when he preached on Sabbath rest, he did this. He said, what about this drum beat? And if you go to nightclubs, you kind of like that trance beat. you know, Oh, yeah, I hope it never ends, right? But real music, to be interesting, it needs some rest. You know, I mean, for music to be interesting, there's got to be syncopation, rest. you got to skip a beat. Without that, there's no real rhythm. There's just droning on like a jackhammer or a machine. We human beings absolutely need a rhythm of rest. We need that in our lives. We need a time where from all the depletion we go through in our work, God is restoring and recreating us. That's really the root of the word recreation. It's the recreating of what was depleted from us as it was drained out in our work. I think the second reason also that God rested was to teach us that being is as important as doing. You know, there's some people who are spending all this energy amassing a vast fortune and they won't buy their first sports car till they're 85 years old and then they'll drive it 25 miles an hour. You know, it's such a waste you got the money, buy your sports car when you're young. What I'm trying to say, and this is not a materialism seminar, what I'm saying to you is this. Some people work so hard and they never sit still to just be and to enjoy. I think God didn't take a nap on the seventh day, okay? I don't think I was like, oh my gosh, oh my me, I am so tired. I need to rest. You know what I think God did? I think he just sat and looked at it all. If I were God, you know what I'd do is I'd shrink myself down and just zoom at light speed through the universe looking at all the galaxies. I, I just imagine the delight, all the different planets and the weird things, purple trees and tree trunks made out of diamonds and stuff. Imagine what could be out there in the universe. And if I were God, for a day I'd just sit and be and take it in and enjoy it. You know, that's a lesson to us. Because the Sabbath rest is such an important part of the rhythm of life, and most of us in America are totally missing out on that. You know what I believe? I believe different kinds of work produce different kinds of depletion. There is a kind of work we do as human beings that leaves us how? It leaves us totally wasted, exhausted, empty, drained. You know, if you hate your job, then on Friday, you know exactly the feeling I'm describing. You have swear words floating through your mind about your job, like, blank this job, thank goodness. It's Friday. How many of you feel like that? Sorry, I just admit it. Come on. Lying bunch of people. Uh, I know that at least half of you, when we're all together alone, right, will say, I hate my job. And on Friday, that's the feeling I have is all the goodness in me got sucked dry and I'm just a hollow shell, a husk of a person. That's a depletion that is in the world, but it's not the kind of depletion that leads to Sabbath rest. There's another kind of depletion That means we're doing the work of God. We're creating something. We're wrestling with some people. We're bringing meaning and hope into the world. We're doing something that is more than just muscle and brain. We're wrestling with our hearts and souls. You know, you know, that's the kind of work I, that pastors get to experience on a regular basis because the nature of our work is we're not creating manuals and, and web pages and all that. We're actually touching people's lives. That's a very different kind of depletion. And at the end of a day's work, you feel really drained, but there's a different kind of drain. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you engage in God work all the time. And there's a difference between on Friday after work and on Saturday after you volunteered at the, at the food pantry And you've given food to a bunch of people who are hungry and are so thankful that you are in their community. And you've said hello to them. You've prayed for them. You've shared smiles with them. You shook their hand. And though you're tired, there's something inside of you that feels very filled. Are you with me? That's the kind of depletion that happens when we serve Jesus Christ. When we touch that side of us, that spark in us that God put in that engages in his work. You know what I find interesting is that there's a ladybug. That's God's creation right here on the podium. Look at that. Um, Sorry. I don't know what it's doing here. Um, Maybe it's God's signal. I should end soon. Let me finish with this. When I talk about Sabbath rest and I paint this picture, look at me for a second. Does this appeal to you? I want you to go home today and, you know, don't flip on your TV or anything. Just sit with the people you love and just talk with them. Bounce your kid on your lap, play with them. Do make-believe kitchen play with them, you know. Take out the Play-Doh or the finger paints. Hang out with your good friends, and instead of watching the game or catching a movie, just sit at a table and really listen to each other. Talk. Carve out an hour and a half just to be still by yourself. Curl up with your Bible or a good book and just feed your soul. Be still listen to some music, get out in nature, probably not today, it's too cold. When the weather's warmer, just sit on a park bench and look all around you. Listen to the sounds. You know, that's Sabbath rest. It's rest that affirms all the things which are good and filling in the world that God gave us. It's, it's rest that connects us to God. You know what we have instead? We have recreation, not recreation. When you have that depletion that is just empty, you seek something to fill you. And what we usually fill ourselves with is junk food. Like when you're starving and it takes too long to make a meal, you grab a hostess ho-ho, don't you? And you gobble six of them down. You're like, I'm full, but no me gusta. It's not a good full. Something's wrong here. And a couple days later, something is really wrong here, right? And here. And, And that's what happens to us. That's not the kind of filling that Sabbath rest is. It's a good depletion followed by tapping to the things that we crave for when we're depleted that way. And when I've ministered and wrestled and served the Lord, all the Xbox playing in the world does not fill me up. It just doesn't. It allows me to disappear for a while. It allows me to shut down and forget But somehow I curl up with the word of God or I just play with my family and my heart is filled up again. It's not draining to me. It charges the battery that got drained. You know, when you're dying of thirst and I say, hey, here's some bread. Is that a good thing? Like, are you stupid? But if I hand you ice cold water, I've hit the spot, haven't I? The reason that Sabbath rest is a hard sell in America is that we're not engaging enough in the kind of work that depletes us the right way. But if we will do it, we will start to crave that kind of rest which the Sabbath has been set apart for. Do you get that? So I want to really encourage all of us. Think about the activity that occupies your week. And think about whether it just leaves you dry and empty or it leaves you with that kind of depletion that is still deeply satisfying that makes you yearn for recharging with God and with the people that you love. If that's the case, then you've discovered why God gave us the gift of Sabbath rest. But if all you'll do is go home today and play and work very hard at recreation, you have missed the point, and you will face Monday strangely a little more tired because of the weekend than you should be. I don't know where God's got you today, but I want to just review quickly for you so you remember it. Origins, no matter where you land, it boils down to faith. If you're going to have faith, have faith in God, not in stuff. And remember that God put a spark in you that has been dying as you aged, but he wants to tap into it today. Some of you guys who always have a scowl and look way too grown up, for just a moment, look at your neighbor and giggle or smile. Just do something that reminds you there's still, I mean, just smile, you'd be surprised, Hans, come on, smile. You'd be surprised how infectious it is to remember that there's a spark in us that we should never let die, because that's God and his image in us. Tap into it, allow him to use that, and let him allow you to create something. By the way, a quick word about that, you know what, we're, we're, a bunch of us are talking about starting a creative, a creative club, an art club at our church that meets once a month for a few hours, just music playing, bring whatever project you're working on, and let's just make something beautiful in, in the same room together. If you'd be interested in that, when you hear the announcement go out, make sure you respond to it. I think it would be a lot of fun for people who need to tap into that again. Okay? And, and lastly, remember rest. But don't just be addicted to rest without working hard. Do the kind of work that depletes you in a godly way. Then seek out the kind